Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. For those of you that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Colby Corkin. I'm the children's and media ministry director here, so I spend most of my time upstairs hanging out with kids, and as I stand here, I am honestly not sure which audience is more intimidating. Uh, as you know, as Travis said, Pastor is on a missions trip, but if this is your first time with us here at Battlefield or your first time back in a while, Pastor has been walking us through a series and a study of the book of Galatians for the past few weeks, and we're going to continue that study today, but if I could just summarize what we've learned and seen so far into just one sentence, it would be this, salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. With that in mind, we're just going to jump right in. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. The Bible says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ." Let's pray. God, we love you so much. God, I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity this morning to just come together and worship you corporately. God, I pray that as we look at your word and we begin to understand what you want us to hear today, God, I pray that our focus would be solely on you. That any other thoughts that we have, any distractions that might try and wiggle their way into our minds, God, I pray that you would help remove them, clear our minds, that we might focus on exactly what you want us to hear today. God, we know that our service is nothing without you, so I pray that you would do what only you can do now, and open the eyes of our understanding, that we might grow closer to you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Jane Elliott was a school teacher who became famous for an experiment that she developed with her elementary students a little over 50 years ago, the day after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Trying to help her students understand the meaning of discrimination, Jane walked into class one day and declared that the brown-eyed students were smarter and better than the blue-eyed students. The students with brown eyes were moved to the front of the classroom. They were given extra time at recess. 
and they were even uh, treated better by their teacher. The students with blue eyes, however, were given special collars to wear so that everyone could see from a distance that they were inferior. The next day, however, Jane walked into class and said that she was actually mistaken. In fact, the blue-eyed students were smarter than the brown-eyed students. And just as you might think, the blue-eyed students yanked off their collars real quick and very excited. This simple experiment showed that the students lived out of their declared identity. On the days when the students wore the collars, they described feelings of sadness and even their academic performance suffered. For example, when the blue-eyed students wore the collars, they needed about five and a half minutes to complete a reading exercise. But when they were free from the collars and they were declared to be the smarter students, they were filled with confidence and they completed the reading exercise in just two and a half minutes. Their understanding of their identity impacted how they lived. In the early 1970s, psychology professor Philip Zimbardo led a team of scientists from Stanford University in a pretty controversial experiment that's still referenced today in both academic circles and in popular culture. The team built a, uh, they built a mock prison in the basement of the university's psychology department and they put ads in the local paper to try and get people to come to participate. And they ended up choosing 24 people who seemed to be the most emotionally stable and healthy. Half of the participants were chosen at random to be uh, prison guards. They were given military-style guard uniforms and dark glasses, and they were told that their job was to keep order. The rest were made prisoners. They were arrested in their homes, cuffed, uh, taken to a real police station. They were fingerprinted and even blindfolded for the trip to the mock prison. And they wore clothes with numbers on the front and the back. And they were only allowed to refer to themselves and others by their numbers. The experiment quickly spiraled out of control, however. Uh, the guards turned into overly aggressive alpha males who really just wanted to humiliate the prisoners. And four of the prisoners actually had to be removed from the experiment early because of major emotional breakdowns uh, with things like extreme depression, crying, rage, and anxiety. And these is from people who they considered to be emotionally stable. The experiment was intended to last two weeks, but Professor Zimbardo shut it down after just six days. You see, for both the prisoners and the guards, understanding their identity impacted their thinking, their attitude, and their behavior. Our understanding of our identity impacts how we live. As we study this passage today and understand our identity in Christ, my hope is that we will begin to live out that identity and take full advantage of who we are in Christ. However, the end result of our understanding who we are and who God has made us to be is not that we get to look in the mirror and tell ourselves how awesome we are, uh, but rather the end result is that Christ is proclaimed. Because you see, when we really understand who God has made us to be and our identity in him, the automatic response is that we declare how great God is. So knowing that, let's look at what God's word says. Look with me again at verse 26. Verse 26. 
The Bible says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Last week, Pastor walked through the majority of chapter 3, which culminated in Paul equating the law, which was given by God, but it's commonly referred to as the law of Moses, uh, ended with Paul equating the law to a schoolmaster or a guardian. And Paul did so to illustrate the nature of the law to his audience. He said that the point was to help us understand our need for saving and to lead us to Jesus, the one who could actually do something about it. And Paul continues that thought in our passage today, but first he breaks just to remind the Galatians of a few things. First, in verse 26, he reminds them and us that they are all children of God by their faith in Jesus. Second, he reminds them and us that after we have been baptized into Christ, speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but something that our physical baptism also represents, we put on Christ. We take up his standing and his righteousness with the Father. The Greek word here used for put on actually gives the image or the idea of putting on a jacket or sinking into a jacket. So in other words, we clothe ourselves with Jesus. And we'll actually see how Paul connects that in just a few verses. Third, Paul reminds us that those who trust in Christ are all one in him. He says, neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. So it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, it doesn't matter what your status in society is, and it doesn't even matter what your gender is. In Jesus, God looks at us all the same. It doesn't mean that those labels disappear like I'm not a man in Jesus anymore. Uh, it just means that he doesn't look at us differently because of that. Finally, Paul reminds them that since we are all one in Christ, if our faith is in him, it means we are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise that God gave Abraham, which we looked at last week in chapter 3 and verse 8. These four verses almost act as conclusion verses for what we see in what Paul's written in chapter 3 and almost even summary verses for what we'll see in the rest of our passage, what we know as the beginning of chapter 4. It's after this that Paul continues his illustration of the culture to the Galatians in verse 1 of chapter 4 when he writes, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. In verses 1 and 2, Paul references a common practice in first century culture when a son was under the supervision of a servant until a time appointed by his father. And when that time came, it was usually around the age of 25 in Roman culture, when that time came, the father would have his son put on a garment that signified his full privilege as a full-grown adult son that now got to enjoy all the benefits of his position and full access to his inheritance. 
And this is the picture that we spoke of from verse 27. Our putting on Christ is the same type of action that a son would undergo in order to receive the full benefits of his position. Because our faith is in Jesus and we've been baptized into him, we then put on Christ, which signifies and symbolizes our position and standing with the Father. It's at this point that Paul then draws a line between that cultural family practice to our spiritual state. Look at verse 3 again. The Bible says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The main piece in this verse is that last part which says we're in bondage under the elements of the world. It's difficult to understand when we read it this way, but when we get back to the original language that Paul was writing in, people much, much smarter than I am, uh, have shown that the Greek word he is using for elements of the world is one that implies things placed in a row or rudimentary or basic things like the alphabet. So Paul is basically saying that there was a time that all of us were or perhaps still are in bondage to very basic principles of understanding, feeling the need to do things in order to earn the favor of others or holding on to certain practices because that's what's always been done and refusing to move on to other things. But thankfully the Holy Spirit didn't stop there and he had Paul write just a little bit more. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. This is really where we begin, excuse me, begin to understand our identity in Christ. We needed the context of the situation to really understand the full picture of who we are in Christ. And here's where we see that picture fully laid out. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of of sons. This is where we'll spend most of our time today. First, notice the parallel between the beginning of verse 2 when he says, until a time appointed by the Father, and the beginning of verse 4 when he says, but the fullness of time was come. Now there's a whole lot that we could unpack, and we could probably spend 40 minutes just looking at this idea itself, but essentially what we need to know is this phrase, when the fullness of the time was come, means that Jesus came precisely when the Father intended for him to. He didn't come too early. He didn't come too late. But he came right on time. Right on time. Verse 4 goes on to tell us that God sent his son born of a woman and under the law. See, Jesus himself had to be subjected to human nature And to the law itself in order to fulfill the purpose of his coming, which we see in verse 5. It says, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Here we find the gospel. God sent his son, born of a woman, and under the law. And his purpose? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We said at the beginning that our understanding of our identity impacts how we live, and we finally come to the point where we see our new identity in Christ. Those of us that have put our faith in Christ, we are sons. Those who haven't yet put your faith in Christ, when you do, you become a son. 
And whether you're a man or a woman, we ought to be very, very thankful that God adopts us and treats us all as sons. Because in the first century culture, who would receive the inheritance, a son or a daughter? A son. And it's the same way with God the Father, but in his love for us, he considers us all sons. But before we get into the significance of that, I want us to look at how we become sons. Because I think it's important for us to know in understanding our identity and living out our identity in Christ. Verse 5 says that we receive the adoption of sons. Adoption is something that I'm sure we're all very familiar with here. But I believe it takes on a new meaning when we really understand the picture that Paul is outlining here. The word adoption literally means to place as a son. In the ancient world, um, the family was based on a Roman law called patria potestas. Everybody say patria potestas. It's a fun one. Uh, It means the father's power. Essentially, this law gave fathers absolute authority over their children so long as the father was alive. Dads, it's not a good idea today. Uh, It means that they could work, enslave, sell, or even if they wished to, pronounce the death penalty for their children. So in this culture, adoption was a very, very serious thing. But it was also a very common practice to make sure that no family would go extinct by having no male children. And when a child was adopted, three legal steps were taken. First, the adopted son was adopted permanently. He couldn't be adopted today and disinherited or disowned tomorrow. He became a son of the father forever. In other words, he was eternally secure as a son. Second, the adopted son immediately had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. Third, the adopted son completely lost all rights in his old family. The adopted son was looked at as a new person, so new that all connections to his old family, all his old debts, all his old obligations were canceled as if they had never even existed. Did you catch all that? Because we just talked about a Roman law who gave fathers complete control over their children. And then earlier we said that children had to wait until a time appointed by their father to receive their inheritance. And yet the adoption process ignores all of it. See, when the adopted son was adopted, he actually even became more secure than a biological son or daughter because he couldn't be disowned, ever. Where a biological son might have to wait until the father thought he was ready to receive the full benefit of sonship, the adopted son was looked at immediately as a full-grown adult son. And to top it off, all their old debts were erased. Every bad thing they ever did, every poor decision that they ever made, every run-in with the law, all of them, gone. This is a picture of God's adoption of us. God adopts us permanently. He doesn't adopt us one day to potentially leave us the next. The Bible says that we are eternally secure in our position 
with Jesus. God adopts us immediately. There is no waiting period for us to enjoy the full benefits of our position as a son. And God adopts us wholeheartedly. When he adopts us, we lose all connection to our old life. Our debts are paid and completely forgotten. And the fact that God adopts us permanently, immediately, and wholeheartedly, once we put our faith in Christ, means that there is nothing you can do that will ever cause God to disown you or to leave you. No matter how many mistakes you've made in the past, no matter how many mistakes you make in the future, that thing that you said that now you wish you could take back, that one choice that you made that still haunts you today, that decision that seemed like it changed the entire trajectory of your life, leaving when you know you should have stayed, giving in to temptation when you know you should have walked away. None of it is enough to change our position as a son in God. None of it. Our understanding of our identity impacts how we live. Jesus came to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons so that we might enjoy the full benefits of being heirs of God. This is our identity in Christ. And Paul goes on to tell us about the primary benefit of that identity in verses 6 and 7. Look at this with me. It says, And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The Bible says that because we are sons, because of our position after he adopts us, God sends his spirit to live in our hearts, to live in us. We're not like the Jews in the Old Testament anymore, living under the law and distant from God's presence. But our position as sons of God grants us moment-by-moment moment access to his presence and brings about perhaps the greatest facet of our new identity. We get to enjoy intimacy with God. Intimacy could be defined as a close familiarity or just a closeness with someone. And trust is at the heart of intimacy, especially with God. We see in verse 6 that intimacy with God comes by His Spirit. Not by acquiring knowledge, but by simply walking with Him. Trusting him for his very great and precious promises that 1 Peter 1.4 tells us about. Which are all fulfilled for us in Christ, which we see in 2 Corinthians 1.20. The end of verse 6 says that his spirit in our hearts is crying out, Abba, Father. This is a phrase that you've probably heard before and maybe even have heard described before. But Abba is an Aramaic term that quite literally means Papa or Daddy. But the implication is much more than simply being able to call God the Father, Papa or Daddy as a young child would. You see, when you receive the news that you never could have imagined, when the diagnosis comes that you weren't ready for, when someone that you thought was a friend betrays you and spreads lies about you, when circumstances 
come about that never in your wildest dreams you could have imagined it. You don't know what to do and you don't know where to turn and in your spirit and in your heart you cry out, Abba, Father. It's in that moment that you realize you have a father, a dad, who cares about you and who is with you and who holds you and who walks with you and who loves you. That's the picture we're talking about. That's the intimacy that's being displayed. We gain intimacy with God. And forever, we have a Father who lets us and wants us, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, to cast all our cares on Him because He cares for us. Finally, verse 7 Verse 7 summarizes what we've seen by saying, look at it again, it says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Those who put their faith in Christ are no longer the slaves or servants referenced in verses 1 through 3, but we are sons. And since we're sons, we become heirs of God through Jesus. This means that all the inheritance that Jesus is set to gain, which you can find in John chapters 14 through 16, some good, some not so good. All the inheritance that Jesus is set to gain, we now have claim to. Because when God looks at those who have put their faith in Christ, he sees his son. Knowing that we are adopted as sons and that we have true intimacy with the Father should change things because our understanding of our identity impacts how we live. Our prayer life should be incredibly different because rather than talking with someone who is distant or unfocused or too busy to pay attention to us, we get to communicate with our Father whose Spirit is living in us, who sent His Son to die for us, and who has all the time in the world to listen to just us. See, that's one of the coolest things to me about prayer is that because God is actually outside of time, which if you spend too much time thinking about, uh, your head might explode. But because God is outside of time, he's not trying to listen to every prayer that's happening on earth at the same time like one big, crazy, jumbled mess. He actually gets to listen and focus to us intently and solely focused on you. And it's not because of any special favor that we've earned, but it's because he loves us as sons. Knowing that we're adopted as sons and that we have intimacy with the Father should also affect our daily walk of faith. Maybe you're here today and you realize that you've trusted Christ and maybe even have felt that intimacy before, but maybe something has happened that broke that intimacy. You haven't been living in your identity as a son, but rather you have the faith of a servant. Maybe your whole life you've been told that you're not going to be good enough, so you approach serving God hoping to finally measure up. Maybe your whole life you've been told that you have to be perfect, and so you approach serving God, hoping to achieve or maintain that perfection. Maybe you've had to fight for everything in your life, and so you approach serving God, hoping that your service will earn you extra favor or blessings. The faith of a servant. You see, a servant does things because the master has ordered them to, or because they hope to hold off some amount of anger from their master. And a servant has no real deep relationship with the master. 
I think we're all guilty at some point of worshiping and praying and giving and reading our Bible and caring for others solely out of obligation. Or because maybe we say, well, God expects me to, so I guess I have to. Or maybe we even hope to earn God's favor and think that by doing lots of things for him, we'll be able to approach him and say, God, look at all the stuff I did for you. I prayed a lot, and even for somebody else, and I read my Bible like three times, three days in a row, and I helped somebody in need. Are you proud of me? Do you love me? But you see, that's the faith of a servant. Doing things, hoping to earn favor, or to hold off anger, or because we've been told to, and doing, the, doing them at a distance. Imagine if, think with me, imagine, some of you know my wife, Taylor, uh, works at a hospital in Fredericksburg. So she's got pretty long commute to work. Imagine if, to relieve some of her stress, I clean the whole house and I make this nice fancy dinner and I even get her flowers Uh, And she comes home and she's like, oh my gosh, you don't know how much this means to me. Thank you so much. I was so worried about the house and I was worried what we were going to eat for dinner. And the flowers, they just make the house smell so nice. And oh man, ah, this is awesome. And what if I responded, eh, it's my duty. I'm your husband, so it's my duty. How do you think she would feel? How romantic. Right? Now, how do you think God the Father feels when we do things for him and we come and say, eh, it's my duty. The faith of a servant. But you see, verse 7 clearly tells us, it's coming back up on the screen, when we put our faith in Christ, this is what takes place. Read this with me. It says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. There it is. It's pretty clear. We shouldn't be living with the faith of a servant anymore because when we put our faith in Christ, we aren't a servant anymore. We're a son. And when we understand our identity as sons of God who now get to be a part of the most intimate relationship, It should change our walk of faith. We no longer pray, read, study, worship, give, and care for others because we want God to like us, but because that's just what we do in this family. We worship the Father because he gave everything for us and went out of his way to bring us into this family. We pray to communicate with our dad. We read and study the Bible to better understand the commands, instructions, and thoughts that our dad left for us. We give because we want our dad to know that we are grateful that he gave everything for us and that we don't take that for granted. And we care for other people because our dad cares for us. And we want others to know what that feels like. That's the faith of a son. Not one of merit or routine task completion, but operating out of a deep, Love for our new family, for the Father who adopted us into it. 
Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to pray and ask God to forgive us for living like a servant when he's called us a son. And ask him to help us to fully live out our identity as a son, moving away from merit-based service and into a life that seeks solely to worship him and behave like his son. You might be here today, though, and you're realizing that you've never put your faith in Christ. Maybe the Holy Spirit's helping you realize that you haven't been living out this identity because you've never been given this identity. Or you've never really understood the point of it all when it comes to Jesus. See, God, through his word, says that we're all sinners. We've all done wrong things and missed the mark of his perfection. And that there's a punishment for that, and that that punishment is death. But I am so thankful that his word also says that he sent his son Jesus, just like we read in verses 4 and 5 today, to come into the world to take our punishment for us, to pay the penalty that we couldn't pay. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and he is alive today. And God says that anyone who believes in him will have everlasting or eternal life. He's taking care of everything for us. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. By putting your faith in Christ and choosing to deny yourself and follow him, you are adopted into God's family and given the position of a son, giving you the rights of Jesus himself and resulting in the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart and offering you an intimacy with the Father that is not possible otherwise. Intimacy with the creator himself. Intimacy with the one who loved you so much that he died for you. See, God already knows you more intimately than anyone else in your entire life because he created you. The Bible says that he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows every choice that you've made so far in life. He knows every choice that you will make in the future. He knows every success. He knows every failure. He knew you before you were born, and he knows the day that you're going to die. God already knows you intimately, but he's offering you the chance to get to know him intimately as, his fa- as your father, allowing him to carry your struggles, looking to him for the answers that you can't find anywhere else, working through his strength to do what you can't do alone. The Bible teaches that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It has nothing to do with what we do or accomplish, but everything to do with what Jesus did and accomplished when he died on the cross for our sins and paid the penalty that we could not pay. The Bible also says that we're not guaranteed any more time than we have right now. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, this evening, or even as you leave this campus. The Bible says now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. If you feel God showing you that you need him, don't wait. Please don't put that off. Because intimacy with the father and being adopted as a son into his family isn't something any of us should take for granted or wait to ensure that we have. Today we have covered a lot. 
And it all essentially boils down to whether you've put your faith in Christ and the identity that results from that. Those who have put your faith in Christ, you are a son and have moment by moment access and intimacy with the Father who loves you and cares for you. Those of you that haven't put your faith in Christ yet, the Father is calling and ready for you. And the moment you put your faith in him, you become a son and gain his spirit, affording you intimacy like you have never known before. Our understanding of our identity impacts how we live. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.